good morning, Northlands Church. I hope we're doing well. If it's your very first time, um, as Greg said, my name is Tyler. I'm a part of the Northlands family. And just so glad that you're here. If it's your very first Sunday, um, a special welcome. We'd love to meet you in the front lobbies after the service and um, connect with you, hear more about your story. We're continuing in a series that we've been in now for the last uh, month that we are calling The Lifestyle of Jesus. And what we are looking at, and I, I can't think of a more timely word for not just Northlands Church, but I think the big C church in our culture at large is we are investigating the life of our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, Savior, and King, Jesus. He spoke ancient truths, truths that we are still studying and reflecting on today. There's no other individual in our history that is like him. I know many people who are not believers, they do not agree with the scriptures, but when it comes to the words that are in red in the scriptures, they go, yeah, well, at least with Jesus, if people lived like him, the world would be a better place. And so what we are doing in this series is we wanna look at how do we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We're studying famous messages um, from Jesus. Uh, Greg, over the last couple weeks, has looked at the messages of Jesus when he talks about seeking first the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, you cannot go anywhere without Jesus bringing up a new kingdom that is now on earth. And then he talked about being led by the Spirit of God. We are not in a religion, we are in a relationship. People who want rules and specific ways to do life, you will be disappointed if you make Jesus your rabbi because he treats us all to this call of, hey, come and follow me. But then when he talks to each of his individual followers, he has a special relationship with each one of us and he calls us to different paths along the same journey. And so what we were doing is we wanna just recognize that he's been speaking truths from the first century Jewish culture, but those have rippled through history and now in the 21st century where we are facing modern problems, problems that the world has never seen before. And yet what we would say is that if we come back to these ancient truths, we will see that we will find solution and resolve even to the problems that the world has never faced in our history. And so um, just, just to, to get us going here, I, I wanna lay a couple of resources before you. These resources are on our journey map and they've helped flesh out this sermon um, today and really been adding to the series that we've been in. Uh, the first one is this book called Lead by Paul David Tripp. I don't know if you've heard of um, Paul Tripp, but he is a, a great pastor, a godly man. Um, he's known as a pastor to pastors. And my wife and I have enjoyed his resources. He has books on parenting, he has books on church life. These are all in the journey map. But this book, uh, Lead, has been speaking to me this week in some quotes from the book I want to bring to us today. And then uh, there's this great new podcast that has come out from um, John Mark Comer and his team of the Practicing the Way team. Practicing the Way is really honestly very similar to our journey map. It's just got a different feel to it. So I love it. But this podcast, Rule of Life, I would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. It's just a group of men and women serving Jesus and having conversations about how they're implementing and practicing these spiritual disciplines that we've been talking about for the last couple months. Now, here's where we're going to go today to begin. Matthew chapter 5 um, to chapter 7 is a famous sermon that Jesus gave on a mountainside. So back then they didn't have title packages. They just said, hey, we're gonna call this one the Sermon on the Mount uh, because he preached it on a mountainside. And it's a famous, uh, famous sermon because he just speaks about a bunch of different aspects of our lives as human beings. He covers a bunch of different grounds in this one all-encompassed sermon, and he talks about what does it mean to be a blessed individual in, in this day and age, not just in the first century, but a blessed human being. He said, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, blessed are, are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. 
And then he talks about the things that we need to deal with in our life, how to deal with things like, like lust and anger and hatred. He talks about these new ideas that nobody had ever heard before about loving your neighbor, but also loving your enemy. He talks about caring for the poor and needy and how we have a responsibility, not just for our own needs, but to consider our brother and our neighbor and our enemy's needs and to meet the needs of the poor. He talks about how to have a rich and authentic prayer life. To pray to God, he introduced it for the first time. He said, hey, when you pray to God, don't just say God, say my father. He talked about what does it mean to, to seek first the kingdom and how to deal with things like anxiety and worry in our life. He preaches this message and then he ends all of these lessons of life with this parable that I wanna read to us in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 to 27. He says this, chapter seven. He says, now therefore, in other words, in light of everything that we just talked about, in light of all the ground that we've covered about the life and how life should be and, and the way in which you should operate your life. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus preaches this message, and he, he then says, hey, now, therefore, in light of everything, how are you going to build your life? Just so you're with me in this parable that Jesus is sharing, the problems of life that we face. That is the wind and the rain and the storm and the flood. And as you notice, he just repeats himself. He says, it doesn't matter if you're righteous and wise, foolish or a sinner. You are all living in the same space, a broken world that is filled with many trials of many kind. He's not saying, hey, come and follow me and I can promise you, you'll never have to deal with a storm ever again. You'll never have to face problems. Now he says, he says, hey, just, just so you know, the rain's coming, be mindful of that. And he doesn't, and the house in the parable is your life. Everybody is building a life. If you're here today, you made a decision to be here. This is like grabbing boards and nails and putting something on your house. Everybody is building a life. All the decisions that you are making, they are a choice that you are making and it's like adding on to a room of your home. The question is not, are you building a life? Or do you have problems? The question is, what's the foundation look like? See, we live in a culture that is constantly looking for more and more different types of foundations. I don't, I don't know about you, um, but I, I often have this conversation when we do membership class here or when I'm talking with people who are kind of searching their spirituality. I just ask them, I go, hey, can we just begin at the very basic level? Can you tell me what is your North Star? What's your North Star? I, I said this to a woman in our class, this was years ago, and I thought the North Star, Polaris in the sky, was like a common reality or metaphor, like a guiding light. And so she was super excited about like the community. They'd been here for several weeks. So like, man, we love this. And then, they, and then she comes to me, she goes, Tyler, I'm, you said you guys are in for the Bible, but then you started talking about a North Star. Are you guys new age? What's the... <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean by North Star? And I was like, when we give you the secret handshake, you'll understand. No. Uh, 
Now, the North, the North Star, as compasses were being developed, sailors and navigators and explorers, as they would navigate through the ocean and they got away from the land, there was absolutely nothing to determine the direction that they were going. But then they noticed, oh, Polaris, the North Star, is a, is a guiding light, a, a star that is unmoving, that is constant, that is never changing. And they realized, hey, regardless of the direction of our ship, regardless of how we're getting tossed to and fro in the storms of life, if we can just look up and see a constant something that is not moving, that is not changing, then we are able to direct and navigate ourselves in a proper way. And so the question is, is what's your North Star? This for me is the biggest question of the current generation, and I believe every generation has to ask it. Because if you're here today and you think that you should be your own North Star, that's gonna mess you up. Perhaps you're here and you're saying, well, you know what, Tyler, it's my life. It's my body, it's my choice. I should be able to decide what is right for me. You have every right to do that. You should have complete autonomy and free will, absolutely. But you make a horrible constant. Have you noticed that? As we would say, a horrible God. Tyler, believe it or not, Tyler was once 18 and Tyler was cocky and arrogant and you didn't need to tell him anything because he knew it all. And do you know who hated Tyler the most? 22-year-old Tyler. Do you wanna know why? because 22-year-old Tyler spent a lot of his life cleaning up what 18-year-old Tyler did. You know what's crazy? There's somebody who really actually is, really, he hates 22-year-old Tyler. It's 33-year-old Tyler. Because I'm cleaning up the message that this man made. And you know what's crazy to me? You guys are listening to 33-year-old Tyler. You should listen to 53-year-old Tyler. Because 53-year-old Tyler thinks this guy's a sham. Sure, good looks, great style. Timeless. These boots, they'll never go out. See, the problem is, is that if you think that you should be in control of your life, you're always changing. You make a crummy God. You are not constant. And you know what? It's good that you're evolving and changing and growing, but, but you realize that that reveals that you are not God that you are a created being, imperfect. Yes. Have you ever tried to build something on an imperfect foundation? See, and then some people say, okay, not me. Culture should be the foundation in which we build upon. Let's get collectively wisdom and counsel. Let's have the majority votes. What is culture saying that we should do? Let's do that, because that makes sense. Let's grab a bunch of imperfect people and put them all together in a room or in a community or in a country and imperfect people, they'll make a perfect foundation. See, culture right now, this is what I, I, I despise about the culture, is the hypocrisy. So woke, so mature, so got it together. Oh, look at those old fuddy-duds back in the day. Look how they messed it up. Let's reject them. Let's cancel that culture. You know who gave birth to this culture? That culture. So the, the reason we're all messed up is because of what they did. In 1920, 1930, 1940, the view of men and women the way in which we treated women or people of color. The culture said this was okay, this is right, this is good. They applauded themselves, patted themselves on the back. I'm so glad that our culture doesn't pat itself on the back and how amazing it is. Just wait 30, 40 years down the road and they'll be shocked as their grandchildren's call them backward thinkers and ridiculous. 
See, if culture is the North Star, culture is every changing. And I, I, this is my theory, I'm not 40 yet. I believe that where midlife crisis comes in is that culture says, you wanna know what the ladder of success is? It's this right here. And men and women, they climb and climb and climb and climb and climb and they work their lives to the bone until they get halfway up the ladder. And then somebody says, oh no, 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 that's not success. Success is on this building over here. So what do they do? They have to climb down the ladder, wasting all of that time. And then they're like, I'm gonna go buy a red Corvette because I'm completely lost. <laughs> And then they start climbing again. You're like, culture tell you what's right? Which then leads me to a part of my faith journey. And then I, I realize, okay, it's not me, it's not culture. There has to be a higher power or a being. So I begin to look at the other religions. And every religion has this, this single thing in common. It's this idea of karma, whatever it is, whether it's uh, Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any type of, of, of religion that has been man-made, I'm telling you right now, they have this one thing in common, it's karma. If you put good into the universe, you'll get good back. If you put bad into the universe, you're gonna get bad back. That's just how it works. If it's reincarnation, if you have a good life here, you should expect a glorious life in the next. If you had a horrible life here because you were a horrible person, don't expect much in the next life. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Religion that relies on man to fix themselves. Didn't we just talk about relying on yourself? If religion relies on your effort and you're ever changing, that religion is unreliable. Every religion is like this, except for one. There was a rabbi in first century. His name was Jesus. And he had this audacious claim. He said, hey, I'm the son of man, I'm God. And he said, because it is no longer about you trying to earn your way up to heaven. If it's up to man to reach up to heaven, you will continually fail. You will continually be building a life and a faith on sand. You will never make it. And so what did God do? God became flesh and he dwelt among us. In our brokenness and in the darkness and in our, in our turmoil, God came down to man and said, this faith is not built on your, uh, your ability. It's ba based on my faithfulness to you. That's the gospel. And so when we look at this life, I, if you're here today and you're a part of the younger generation, and, and this is a term that I don't think is ungodly, but this idea of deconstruction of faith. I understand it, you've grown up in faith perhaps, or perhaps you've never experienced it before, but you're trying to deconstruct the things that you once believed, just like 18 or 20 year old, two year old or 33 year old Tyler, we're constantly changing and we're constantly evolving. May I just give a word of caution. If you deconstruct your faith and you have no plans of rebuilding, you will be homeless at the end of it. Yes. And when the winds and the storm of life come, it's even worse than a house on sand. But if you buy into the lie of the culture, I'm gonna deconstruct and I'm gonna build something brand new that this other, the world hasn't ever seen before. We're gonna do it better, we're gonna be greater. If you do that, I'm telling you, you are building once again on a faulty cultural foundation. And that new thing that you build, no matter how shiny it is, it will fall. Deconstruction is not reconstructing something new that the world has never seen before. Deconstructing is getting back to the ancient path getting back to the ancient foundation that, that a Galilean rabbi spoke about. And he said, hey, if you hear my words, I'm telling you and, you, and you act on them, you practice them, this will be a firm foundation to build your life. And so Jesus is now finished up his sermon. He lands the plane with this parable. And then it says this as the response to the people who heard. And in, in, in verse 28, he says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed or astonished at his teaching. For this reason, 
because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law or the teachers of their culture. They were astonished that Jesus had worked miracles, but they weren't astonished by the miracles and the power that were going out at this moment. They were astonished because the words that he spoke had authority. Jesus wasn't regurgitating talking points. He wasn't going, hey, I've read a bunch of novels this week. I've read a bunch of self-help books. I've, I've got some talking points from CNN and from Fox News. I've got what everybody's talking about. I've got this really great, this idea about the circumstances that we're dealing with. And he began to preach off of that. He goes, no, the men and women, they opened up their hearts to him. And they began to receive truth because they could not deny this man is not grabbing talking points, but he is the originator of truth. It was as if he was speaking about life and building a healthy life as if he had personal experience, as if he had already completed the task, as if he could see into the future and go, I know how to build a strong home, let me tell you. And they believed him. And what's amazing is that those first century people who didn't have all the problems that we're facing and all the fast paced environments that we live in, but they're opening up their hearts to this truth. And men and women have been opening up their hearts in the history of the world ever since to these truths. And it brings us to the day. And it makes us wonder, how is it possible that these, this man's teachings are still relevant to us today after 2000 years? Who else has teachings like this? Yeah. <clears throat> And the reason is that he was relevant is because he spoke not to your current circumstances, not to your temporary problems, but he spoke to the human condition and the heart. He wasn't just dealing with the temporary circumstances of your life. He was dealing with the inward turmoil that we all have, our lack of peace, our anxiety, our worry. And no other teacher was able to say, hey, I know how to get rid of that. But Jesus said, I, I am the way, I am the truth, and I can bring life into that space. See, here's, here's what I, I know to be absolutely true, and, and this, is, this is the good news, that, that we all walk in with thousands of, in this room is representing thousands of problems. I have my set of problems, and you have your set of problems. Here's the bad news before the good news. The bad news is, is that five years from now, most likely, the very problem that is sitting in your head and heart right now that's distracting you from listening to my words that you're worried about, it's probably not going to exist five years from now. Yeah. That sounds like good news, Tyler. The, the bad news of that is that because in five years' time, you'll have a whole new set of problems that are overwhelming you. <laughs> but here is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, he cares for your daily needs. He cares about your problems. But the truths that he have are not to deal with symptoms, but root issues. The truth of the message of Jesus is not that he is preaching to your temporary problems, but he is preaching to your heart. In other words, culture, culture would preach to you and say, hey, if you want a firm foundation and to build a strong and good life, what you need to do is you need to do anything that gives you ease and comfort. Buy what we're selling, and I promise you, you can have an easy life. And religion would say, the religion would say, if you want a good, strong foundation and a good life overall, it's about fixing all of your problems. Get yourself cleaned up, and then maybe in the cleaning, God would bless you with a good life. Jesus is not a used car salesman. He's not saying, come and follow me, and I promise you, if you follow me, the moment you become a Christian, your life is easy. 
just to help the people in the room who are thinking about giving their life to Jesus or they're brand new to the faith. If you've been serving Jesus for 20 years, was that the case for you? I, ser- I said yes to Jesus and man, comfort and ease. That's how I would describe everything. And yet so many people step into the church and then they leave the church and begin to deconstruct because they go, I was sold a bill of goods that if I come here, my needs would be met and I would never have to face a problem. And they leave the church because they realize, oh, it's a mask and a fake veneer. These people have just as many messed up issues as I do. This clearly isn't the place for answer. If you believe that Jesus is selling you a bill of goods that, hey, come to me and I will give you an easy life. Some people believe Jesus is like the other religions where he'll say, hey, come to me after you get your act together and then I'll consider blessing you. Jesus is not selling you on an easy life because if you look at the life of Jesus as we've been investigating, Jesus' life was not easy. It was not comfortable. He was homeless a lot of the time. I, I just got done finishing reading the, the book of John. Just, just a, it's not that, that long, just book of John. Half of the book is, oh, and Jesus was pretty much a fugitive. You wanna know the story? They're just trying to kill him constantly. Arrest him, then kill him. Stone him. His life was never easy. His life was always hard. Jesus is not promising you a brand new upgraded life as if he's trying to change out the old car that you're driving and then a new, more comfortable model with better AC and control. Jesus is saying, come to me with your life as it is, warts and all. I'm not looking for a better version of you. I'm asking you to come to me just as you are. And what I'm going to do with your very difficult hard life, I don't know what you've been through. You might have incredible trauma in your past, lost many, many things. And the worst news is that religion would tell you, hey, you need to fix all that before you're ever gonna be considered to have an abundant and good life. Jesus says, no, 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 just bring it to me. What I wanna do is I actually wanna show you how to hold the life that you have, which is a gift from God, and I'm gonna show you how to navigate it. I'm not gonna ask you to to fix those disabilities and those deficiencies and all the different quirks that you have that rub people the wrong way and going, hey, that's not fit for church, let's fix all that. He's going, no, 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 come now, give it to me. Let's build together. I will show you a better way. I love this, I love this psalm as we talk about storms and the problems of life. Psalm 112, uh, verses six and seven. And then I just wanna read a quote from Paul Tripp as he, as he examines these two scriptures. Listen to this, it says, surely the righteous will never be shaken. The wise man who builds on a strong foundation will never be shaken, why? They will be remembered forever and they do not fear the bad news for this reason. Their hearts are steadfast, like a firm foundation, putting their trust in the right thing, the Lord. And I like what what Paul Tripp has to say in this book, Lead. I definitely recommend it. Again, it'll be on the journey map under um, Life of Leader and under uh, Soul Care. He says this, I love those words. A leader or a person whose identity and security is in the Lord is liberated from fear. Even in the face of bad news, like the storms of life, his heart is firm, not wobbly, unstable, or weak. He is not fear-free because he is in control. How many control freaks do we have in the room? He is not fear-free because he has nothing to fear. He is fear-free because his stability, his sense of well-being, it's vertically. He does not need to be in control because he does not need the things around him to go well for his heart to be firm. 
Jesus is giving you an invitation as we study his life. I like how Dallas Willard said it, and we quoted this in our last series. You hold your life as if he were we, or he were me. If Jesus had Tyler's life, married to Nicole, a father to two little girls, a pastor for a decade, worked in sales, has all of his weird quirks and deficiencies, a great sense of style, once again. <laughs> how, how would Jesus navigate this life? Religion says, Tyler, if you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you need to get uniformity. Don't, don't be like this. Come and be this sterile, plain machine type thing over here. Then Jesus might be able to use something like that. Jesus says, no, no, no. You're a gift from God, created with all the different nuances. I'm not here to give you a different life so that you're inhuman and not you. I'm here to take your life and to show you how to build with it. And so we have to ask the question, where, where do we begin the building? How do we bring my life to Jesus so that he can begin this work of a foundation? And, and I think as we talk about the spiritual practices and we talk about uh, whether it's seeking the kingdom or being led by the spirit of God, this is the beginning part. We have to learn the lifestyle of abiding and connecting. Some translations say remaining, connecting, abiding with your heavenly father. And so Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 15, we'll, we'll read through it fairly quickly, um, the 16 verses. And he says this, Jesus is talking. He says this, just so everybody's clear on who's who. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, uh, already you are clean because of, the um, because of the word that I have spoken to you. You have salvation. Faith in Jesus gives you salvation. Jesus isn't talking about what happens after your death. He's talking about how should you live your life here and now. And so he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he just makes it clear so that we're clear on who we are. If you haven't already guessed it, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What I find interesting is Jesus goes, all right, let's lay out the characters. My father is the gardener. He's the one that determines what we're planting. He's the one who made you, you. Now Jesus is saying, now I am the vine. I am the well of life. All fruit, it comes from me. If you wanna have fruit in your life, if you have a, have a strong life, a fruitful life, where it all begins is your relationship with the vine. And then he makes it clear, you are the branches. I love the picture of branches. Have you ever seen branches? Have you ever put two branches together and go, they're exactly the same? They're twisted, they're turned, they're contorted, and none of that determines whether they're gonna bear fruit. The only thing that determines it is two things. Are they connected to the vine and are they being allowed to be pruned by the gardener? And so then Jesus, again, he makes it plain. He's teaching us about how to live our lives appropriately. He says this about branches. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Or as he said in Matthew, that's like having a house, but it's built on sand. A branch that is disconnected, it will not last through the storms of life. 
And then he continues, if you abide in me, however, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's like you are a wise man building on a rock. You understand, oh, connect to the vine. That's where it all begins. Verse eight, by this my father is glorified. What pleases the father? What is the thing that God desires most for your life and my life? He wants you to bear much fruit. This idea that religion says, hey, fix yourself, clean yourself up, and maybe God will throw you a bone or some fruit. It is God's deepest desire as the gardener and the vine dresser to have you bear fruit. He's not throwing you courtesy fruit. He's going, I created you to produce fruit. I will not stop until I see fruit yield. It glorifies him. It, it does his heart good to see you bearing fruit and fruit that lasts. Verse nine, as the father has loved me, so I loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in this love. These things I have spoken to you, and listen to this for this reason, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is going, it is my great joy and honor to see you yielding and bearing fruit. I am not promising you, hey, do all the right things and then I'll give you a taste of the good life. I'm shocked, I'm shocked by this and sometimes I'm, I'm irritated by it and he has to work on my heart. I go, I've served you my entire life. And what this is telling us and all of Jesus' parables, he says, the kingdom of God is very near. Holy men don't have an edge. They don't have a head start on it. The moment you say yes to Jesus is the moment he says, now reach out and touch the kingdom of God. Eternal life is yours. It's not something you work for. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that is found by the ease of life. He's saying it is yours. Salvation is yours today, here and now. Glad that you've walked for, for decades, but for the person who just said yes to Jesus, the same exact fruit, it is theirs by birthright. Not because of what they do, but because of who they were made to be. If you're here today and you're brand new to the faith, or if you're here today and you're considering it, I am telling you the kingdom of God and the abundant life, it is right at the threshold of your door. Reach out and touch it. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I think it's amazing that he's talking about abiding and all of a sudden he goes, but he goes, not just the love that we have between each other, how we operate and love one another. He says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone who lays down his life for his friends. And then he says this to make it clear because he's gonna die for them. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servants does not know what, the ma what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus gives us timeless, lasting truths. And it's those lasting truths that produce a lasting fruit. Did you catch that? It wasn't just, I want you to bear fruit. He says, I want you to bear fruit that abides, that lasts. Jesus doesn't speak to the circumstances of your life, not because he doesn't care for those circumstances, but he's saying the circumstances do not determine the future that I have for you. Your heart, 
That's what I am after because that's where the lasting fruit is. I'm not interested on the symptoms. I want the root of the vine. I want to fix the turmoil that's in here. He's going, it's not enough. Just because you lack resources doesn't mean you have to lack peace or joy. Where does lasting fruit come from? Galatians uh, chapter five, verse 22 to 23, Paul picks up on this very language that is in John 15, and he says, hey, you have to understand the fruit of the spirit, the gardener and the vine, the Trinity working together, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He goes, you wanna know why my truths last? because the Holy Spirit of God is at work and he will not stop bearing fruit and drawing it out of you. Doesn't matter if you're poor or rich or have or do not have, or you're a minority or you're in the majority or you're the popular kid or you've got your grades together or your career's figured out or you're perfect. None of that, he goes, not because he doesn't care for him, but he goes, those things do not determine the fruit that I'm gonna bear in your life. And he goes, and more than that, I want to build your life so firm that if all those things are taken away, I love the worship this, this morning because it spoke to it. If everything else is taken away, you can have the world. What I want is Jesus because I know that is something that cannot be taken from me. You could not have predicted the problems that you faced over the last three years. Think about that. We could not have predicted where the world was going, but the reason Jesus' messages are still relevant for today is because he's not trying to predict the future and the culture and where they're going and trying to be relevant and current. He is famous and he is known, not because he goes after those things, but because he says, those things will not determine the peace, the joy, the love, the gentleness, the kindness, and the self-control that my followers are going to keep. It will not be taken away. Jesus spoke not to the temporary problems or the circumstances, but to, once again, the human condition. It was uh, 17th century France, 1600s. Horrible time in France's history. Tumultuous, war, famine, poverty, rampant. And I think it was about 1611, 1601, somewhere in that, a man was born named Nicholas Herman. And he was born into a dark culture, a dark moment in history, and he was, he was born honestly into a horrific family that was just destitute and impoverished. And he made the decision to join the army, not because he had a, 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 a pride in his country, but because the, the army would promise him regular meals and a little bit of stipend to keep him going. And so he served in the war, got beat up, and eventually forced into retirement because of his injuries that he incurred there. And he decided that in that moment, it was, it was, he, had, he has this whole story of conversion, but it was in that space that he met Jesus for the very first time. And it was from that conversion, he gave his life to one ambition, to one thing. He said, I am going to learn how to abide. I wanna practice the presence of God. I've tried to live this life the best that I could. I've tried to live this life uh, as much as I could, but it just keeps beating me up. But now I found Jesus and, and everything else can clearly just be taken from me. I, there's no way that I can keep wealth. There's no way that I can ensure that I'm gonna have food. But what I can ensure is nobody can take Jesus from me. And so he committed his life to abiding. And he, he ended up joining and becoming a monk and joining a monastery. And he ended up being the dishwasher. of It's like even the monks, even they have to have dishwashers. So you've got all the guys who are like lighting candles and preaching and doing all the exciting things that monks do, sitting there quietly. And then you have in the basement of the kitchen, a man washing dishes, practicing abiding. 
And this, this monk became famous because as he began to do this, men and women would cross his path. And when they would talk to him, they go, he speaks with a kind of authority. There's a truth in him, a wisdom in him that doesn't seem like somebody from his background could possibly have. And they realize, oh, this man's been with Jesus. That's one of the, that's one of the common notes of the disciples after they, they, they start the church. They go, oh, these common men, they've clearly been with Jesus. And so he becomes famous, not because he, gets, he graduates, not because his life gets better, not because he's promoted and he has a level of influence and a following and he blows up on Twitter. None of those things, 1,600 friends, there was no Twitter. He becomes famous because he goes, this man clearly is with Jesus. And it's not because he, he climbs you know, tall mountains or he has a prayer closet or this rhythm of following fasting and prayer and Bible. No, he just, he's washing dishes. And his name changed from Nicholas Herman to Brother Lawrence. And people begin to study his life and go, how do you abide the way you do? And, and you're doing it while you're washing dishes. And he, he had this, this quote as men and women interviewed him. They'd, they'd come in and have conversation. He was like, yeah, I'm not gonna come to your office. If you wanna interview me, I'm gonna be here washing dishes. He says this, and this is, they talk about this in the podcast I referenced of Practicing the Way. He said, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. In the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacraments. He goes, you think abiding requires me to do some sort of thing before I can connect with God. Religion. If you're gonna connect with God, you gotta clean your life up, fix it up. Do something that looks more spiritual than washing dishes. And he goes, no, I found abiding, whether it's in business or whether it's in prayer, whether I can find silence and solitude where people won't bother me or whether the needs of people are grabbing at me continually. Those things don't disconnect my relationship to the vine. Why do I tell you about Brother Lawrence? Because I think that maybe some of you here today you hear spiritual practices like seeking first the kingdom or being led by the spirit or abiding and you go, Tyler, that must be nice to have that kind of luxury, to get away somewhere quiet where people won't bother you, to get away where I won't be distracted, to get away where I'm not grabbed by my calendar. That must be nice for a guy like Brother Lawrence or for the real spiritual people. He was a dishwasher and he found how to abide while washing dishes. The reason that this is so important is because religion would tell you, if you want to abide, uniformity. It doesn't acknowledge that we have different experiences or different past hurts and different traumas or that we all have our different set of problems. It just says, hey, if you want to abide, if you want to reach God, you will do this. Wake up at 4 a.m., fast, pray, do all the right things. These spiritual practices are not some sort of notch on your belt that if you do them, God goes, that's good behavior. I'm going to bless that. The spiritual practices, if they're not done in a way of just saying, I'm just using these practices as a means to an end. They're not the end. They're just a means to connect, to help you abide. Jesus is not interested in like religion of uniformity. He wants unity with you. He wants a relationship. I always find it fascinating when Jesus is crucified, rises from the dead, Peter, who denied him at the time of his greatest need, denies Jesus three times, and, and Jesus says, all right, Peter, I'm gonna reinstate you. I'm giving you a second chance. 
But when he talked to Peter, the young man, the fisherman, at, in his early 20s, he said, hey, come and follow me. And what Peter heard was, this man's gonna make me a miracle man. He's gonna make me a miracle worker. I can be famous like Jesus. Absolutely, Jesus, I'll follow you. Selfish ambition, Jesus goes, it's fine. Just bring your life to me. That doesn't throw me off. Come, come follow me. Give me your life as it is. And when he reinstates Peter, he has a different conversation. He says, all right, Peter, once again, I'm holding your life. But I need you to know this, that this time, if you follow me, Men are gonna take you where you do not wanna go. They're gonna stretch out your hands. They will kill you for following me. You will die. Do you still wanna do that? And Peter, taken aback, he looks down the beach and he sees that the, the, another disciple, John, is following and he, and he just, in his anxiousness, he says, what about him? Is he gonna, are you gonna put that on him as well? And Jesus very lovingly looks at Peter and he says, we're having a relationship, me and you. What's it to you what I have going on with John? We are many branches. We come from many different backgrounds, different hardships, different challenges. And I think sometimes we would prefer that if God would just make us all straight rods, dowel rods that are all the same, we all have the same amount of goods, we all have the same kind of life because it's easier to predict routine and uniformity if you just had the same Thursday, 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 again and again and again, eventually you could kind of connect the dots and go, okay, this is how I should navigate through this, but that's not how it works. Life is full of surprises and opportunities and problems of many kind. And so God in his sovereignty and his goodness, he made us branches and he's not interested in some sort of uniformed group of people. He's interested in relationships with individuals that are connected to his son, our head, to make up an organic body, not a machine. And so the question is not, can I abide? Don't say I can't because, that's just not true. What kind of life are you bringing to the Lord right here, right now? Perhaps you're here today and you're a student or you're single, you're married, you're a single parent perhaps, poor, rich, struggling with your addiction, minority, teenager, senior citizen, man or woman, an artist, an accountant, a ministry or marketplace leader. Perhaps you're here today and you're disabled. Perhaps you're suffering from a severe illness. Doesn't matter what's happening right now in your life. Not because, again, not because Jesus doesn't care about what's happening. He's saying, I don't need you to be a special someone in order for me to bear fruit out of your life. What, I need, what I'm asking you is, will you follow me? Will you give me your life put it on the foundations of my lifestyle so that we can build something that will last together. So my question to you is how are you, in light of the life that you have, how are you going to abide this week? And you might say, Tyler, would you just give us something to do? No, because you're not supposed to ask me. You're supposed to go ask your master, your teacher, your king. You wanna know what to do this week of how to abide? Then go to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me this practice. And I can just tell you, like a doctor who practices medicine or two, two people who love each other and they wanna build a life together, you will not get it right. Just because you said I do in marriage does not mean you're like, and I'm a boss now at marriage. It's a practice, a relationship, a working together. Sometimes you're gonna connect with Jesus and go, man, nailing it. And other times you go, man, I don't know where he is. I'm not hearing, that doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that he's punishing you. It means that you're committing to a practice. Give me Jesus. If we wanna be 
Jesus followers practicing the way of Jesus, if we wanna have an authentic, real faith, a relationship with Almighty God, the good news is it's not found in lighting candles or doing all this work or cleaning your life up. It's in coming to him, once again, warts and all, and saying, Jesus, this is my life. As it is, you can have it all. Now would you teach me how to hold it well and to navigate through it. Be my North Star. Be my guiding light. Be my firm foundation and do not allow any other voices to determine how I ought to navigate through this life. We do have an ancient truth that can help us navigate through this modern world. And he is Jesus. Abandon everything else and only go after him. Seek first his kingdom. Be led in a relationship by his spirit. And I promise you, I promise you this, when the storm of life comes, your life will not go crashing down. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I, I just pray right now that we would begin to just take away the veneer and the masks and the pretending. If we're not okay, we're not okay. But the good news is, is that we can bring our life to you and you begin to bring health and life and healing and wholeness and you bear fruit. Lord, we don't have to have hours and hours of uninterrupted time. We don't have to wait till our kids get out of the house and it's not so noisy. No, no matter what's happening in our life right now, whether we're staying up late studying for the finals, whether we're, whether we're um, traveling the world or whether we're, we're stuck at home, doesn't matter what's happening around us. What matters is that you are available here and now. God, make yourself very near. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, fill them, Lord. Draw us close to you in this time as we've been praying as a church about collecting oil because there will be a time when the night is very long. Lord, let us abide in you so that we might be filled, that we would not be worried in trying to control our own destiny in life because we don't have to be in control. We surrender control to you, the one who made everything that holds everything and the one who will hold us fast in the storm. Now teach us as Jesus followers to be this and to be this for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite Jenny to come on up.